and welcome to Silver Age Silver Screen, a podcast where we watch, discuss, and review sci-fi, cult, superhero, and other stereotypically geeky films. I'm your co-host, Casey Charms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorpe. And you know, Riley, did you know that space is a vacuum? And because it's a vacuum, no sound can travel through it. Which means in space, no one can hear you scream. (laughs) Unironically, that is a phenomenal tagline for a movie. And what movie are we talking about? Why, Alien, of course. The movie about an alien. (laughs) Very creative title. Sorry, I don't know what these reactions are today. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just gasping at this point. Well, don't. It's weird. Yeah. This movie, you've heard of it. It's sci-fi classic. It's one of the most acclaimed sci-fi films ever, for good reason. Yeah. It was directed by Ridley Scott, stars Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, John Hurt, Veronica Catwright. It started the Alien franchise. It currently has six films in the main series, but it also created two spinoffs, which were the two Alien vs. Predator movies, which are non-canonical. Yeah. So there's six in the main series. And all six of them are amazing. Undeniably perfect films. Yeah. All of them. Every single last one of them. Yeah. Especially Prometheus. But this one is genuinely very close to perfection. Oh, yeah. Like, not to tip our hands, but God, I'd seen this movie before and I enjoyed it. I forgot just how really good this movie is. This is a good movie. Yeah, yeah. This movie pioneered a whole new genre in cinema. Well, really made it popularized, I would say. It really started the trend of these small-scale contained thrillers just set in one location, a group of people getting attacked by something. It really was a big trendsetter and very influential into sci-fi and horror cinema going forward. Yeah, and we'll get into it later as we get to the relevant parts, but this film, from what I've read, I mean, obviously, this film, it came out 42 years ago, and I'm very young, so I can't say this from first-hand experience, but I've read people discussing the impact this had on both horror and sci-fi, and really in general, cinema that features female protagonists, which we'll get to, Mm -hmm. but Alien. Right at the beginning of the movie, there comes the iconic title sequence, which is like the title of the movie, Alien, but all of the lines of each of the letters are slowly fading onto screen as the camera pans across this unknown planet in the middle of outer space until we eventually come across the cargo ship, the Nostromo. With a crew of seven people, they carry mining ore, and they're on their way back to Earth. And you know, it's interesting, the first five minutes or so of this film are completely dialogueless. Mm-hmm. Just these shots sweeping through these cramped ship corridors as everything is turning on, as the ship is powering back on from hibernation, and eventually the crew wake up from their cryosleep. This film overall, it's... In the past, we've criticized films for being slow, but this is a film that does slowness right. Right. There's this sense of bread and unease through every scene of this film. Like the first half, you're just waiting for something to happen, waiting for the shoe to drop. Because just the way it's shot, you can tell things are going to go to hell very soon. The question is when. Yeah, and the movie being slow, at least for me, is never really a determining factor of whether or not the movie's good because some of my favorite films and television shows are very slow-paced and others are very fast-paced. 
But the difference being, if a movie is slow but bad, oh yeah, it's boring. But if a movie's slow but still very good, they'll call it a slow burn. So for that reason, it's like slowness to me personally does not determine whether or not a movie's good or bad. If it is slow, what purpose does it serve and does that achieve that effectively? And this movie very much so does. The camera pans through the Nostromo, the cargo ship, and the production design right out the gate is amazing. Not only is the ship, the exterior and the interior of the ship designed immaculately well, but it also feels like a place where people have been living in for months, if not years, which is, for all intents and purposes, is what this crew has been doing. Yeah, the ship, it's dark, it's cramped, it's dingy and huge, which both establishes the world of this movie and later on is very, very unfortunate for the crew members because, oh man, a dark ship with a lot of corridors. Man, I hope there isn't a black, or that's a poor way to phrase it, but a black (laughs) alien wandering around killing them, blending into stuff. You're such a racist against xenomorphs. We're introduced to the crew as they wake up from cryo sleep. We have the captain, Dallas, his stern right-hand man, Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, who we have so much to talk about, Ellen Ripley. Oh, yeah. Plus, they're kind of timid navigator Lambert, their two engineers, Brett and Parker, their mysterious science officer, Ash, and John Hurt as a guy named Kane. Yeah. I mean, when your movie has the late, great John Hurt in it, you know it's going to be a great movie. That dude was a phenomenal actor. Rest in peace. That guy killed it every single movie. Yeah, like every movie he's in is good. Like, for instance, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Good actor. Yeah, yeah. So the crew discover, hey, that's weird. We're very far from Earth. Why did the ship wake us up? It was only supposed to wake us up when we were close to Earth so we could land this. Oh, good. The ship received a distress call from some random planet. Let's just ignore that. Oh, wait, no. The science officer, Ash, said that we're legally required to check out distress signals or we lose all of our pay. So let's go to the spooky, desolate planet. I'm sure nothing bad will come from this. Yeah, no, not at all. They land on the planet. And again, it's a very much so a slow burn. It takes them a while to get to the planet. You're just getting a sense of the feel and the tone and the tension of this movie. And this movie is very, very well directed. Ridley Scott did a great job with it. The actors have a lot of great chemistry with each other as well. They land on the surface of the planet. It's a very toxic, stormy planet where the people have to go out in spacesuits. When they land, the ship gets damaged and it's going to take them about 24 hours to fix it. So half the crew, including Ash, Ripley, and the two engineers, stay back to fix it, while the rest of the crew go out into the desolate planet and investigate the SOS call. And eventually, they happen upon a giant alien ring-shaped spaceship. And instead of turning around and saying, fuck this, which is probably what I would have done, no, they go and investigate it further. I mean, it's a horror movie. You can't have characters be super intelligent, and they don't do anything too bad at first. They just, ooh, alien spaceship. Let's check it out. It's not like they're engineers and doctors and scientists or anything. It's not like they're smart people. To be honest, though, if I really think to myself, I would probably go investigate that ship if someone next to me said, do it, no balls. I mean, to be fair, they have to 
because money on the line. Corporation gonna take their paychecks away if they don't investigate the cool spooky spaceship. Yeah, very true. Also, I mean, come on. I believe they state in this movie that this is the first time that they've ever found something like this. Where's your sense of curiosity, Riley? Hey, I said I'd do it if someone told me no balls. <laughs> so they go into the spaceship and start exploring, and partway through it, it cuts back to the main ship where Ripley has decoded the distress call and turns out, ooh, it's not an SOS, it's a warning saying stay away. I I'm sure that's fine. They're already gone. There's no time to warn them i'm sure they won't do anything dumb so dallas's crew is going through this abandoned spaceship and they come across this pilot chair where there's this alien skeleton that has his bones like bended out from the inside this alien belong this skeleton belongs to a species of alien that would later be explained in prometheus as an engineer a species of alien that created human life and then millions of years later created other life for the sole purpose of going back to Earth to use that second life to kill human life for reasons that I don't even think Ridley Scott or the writers know about. And then an android, which was created by humans, took that second life and then engineered it to be the xenomorph, not even a xenomorph, like a prequel xenomorph, a predecessor to the xenomorph, and then probably something else happened and then happened again. Prometheus and Alien Covenant really fucking convoluted. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad I haven't seen them because that sounds like some big, big shark jumping. I'm not going to get too far into it, but like the purpose of Prometheus, it was going to explain the origin of the xenomorph and how like it was this alien DNA and that mixed with human and then an android started experimenting with it and did more. And it, it's like, that's so fucking stupid. What? Like for me personally, it would be so much more terrifying if the origin of these creatures was just like, oh, yeah, they're just they're just out there in the universe. The universe is infinite. And in this one dark corner of it, there's this murderous machine, unstoppable killing machine. And there's an entire planet filled with them. And they've been able to get off planet. Like, that would be so much more frightening to me, which is the purpose of what a xenomorph is. It's to scare people. Like, that would be so much more frightening and better than, oh, it's like aliens, humans, androids, and like a six movie series explaining the entire chronology of how this fucking happened. It's stupid. I really hope they don't make a sequel to Alien Covenant. Okay, good to know. I'll avoid watching those ones, I guess, because they're bad. Honestly, I haven't even seen Aliens, like the sequel to this, which is supposed to be really good. Arguably, Alien and Aliens are really the only two great ones. There are people that argue that Alien 3 has a sense of charm to it, but it, it's not good. <laughs> let's, let's be real. David Fincher refuses to talk about that one. And then literally all the other ones are just bad. But anyway, we're not talking about those. We're talking about Alien. So as Dallas's team are going through this abandoned spaceship, they come across a big pit and they decide to lower John Hurt's character Kane down into it and as he goes down into this pit he finds a cargo hold that is just filled with hundreds of alien eggs and he slips and gets close to one and it starts to hatch and he leans in to look at it and 
I mean, it's what this movie is famous for. It jumps out and it latches onto his face and just, like, attaches itself. Yeah, a face hugger jumps out of the egg and attacks him. Which, also, side note, do they ever explain in this movie if they had ever met another species of alien before? I believe they say, like, when Ash is doing his evil science officer stuff, like... This is the first time we've encountered something like this. I don't know if that's implying that humanity never has, or that just this crew, or that this species is different from other aliens they've encountered. I get the vibe that this is the first time they've encountered aliens. Well, I mean, the first time the crew thinks they've encountered aliens, because Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. The thing about, well, Prometheus is it's like, spoiler alert, everybody in that movie dies. So the secret doesn't get out. Yay. But... I don't know, just for me, one thing that I did get the feeling that they did mean that as like, this is the first time we've ever met an alien. That's what I got the feeling of, personally. But it's like, they see a giant engineer skeleton with a giant chest wound, and it's like, they seem to kind of brush it off. There's not a moment where they're like, holy shit, this is the skeleton of an alien. So if this is the first alien, dead or alive, that they've ever seen, I don't know, that, that's kind of a weird reaction to it. Like, oh, yeah, that's I mean, a thing. to be fair, it's not like they're Star Trek-style, boldly going where no man has gone before to find new aliens. True. They're just supposed to be shipping, like, metal. Like, they don't get paid enough to be curious about aliens. Yeah, yeah, I guess. So they drag Kane back to the ship, and initially Ripley doesn't want to let them in because of quarantine procedures, because, hey, what if whatever attached to his face gets out and it kills the entire crew? And you know what? Ripley comes across as being kind of, like, mean in that scene. But in hindsight, she was very much right. Do not bring the alien onto the ship. See, that's the thing. Up until that point, up until most of the movie, up until, well, honestly, up until most of the way through the movie, it's pretty unclear as to who exactly is the protagonist in this movie, who's like the central character. And it was really at this scene in particular where it kind of starts to become a bit more clear because you're looking at Ripley. She's saying like, yes, I know he's my friend and crewmate, but I can't afford to jeopardize the lives of everyone else just to save him and let him into the ship. You know, she's obeying protocol, putting the needs of the many before the needs of the few, you know? So she starts to kind of become more of a protagonist in this scene. Although I would argue this film is a subversion on who its protagonist is, or at very least it changes halfway through. In the first half of this film, I would argue that Dallas is a protagonist and he feels like a more traditional sci-fi protagonist, this cowboy captain who's dedicated to his crew, who's willing to risk his life fighting the alien, whereas Ellen Ripley is his kind of stern second-in-command who's getting in his way. Except... Unlike in OG Star Trek, he is very much wrong. He, spoiler alert, he dies and Ripley has to take over his leadership. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's a very interesting subversion of expectations. And this also very much so pioneered the idea of a female protagonist in a film like these. Mm-hmm. Before that, we had never really seen female characters in a role like this, in a central role as a protagonist of a sci-fi action horror movie. And to be honest, 
there was a long time before we saw a lot more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good old Ellen Ripley, the first really big, like, sci-fi movie protagonist that people who have never seen Alien will use as, like, the pinnacle for, like, female protagonists for decades. And, like, oh, I... I'd, uh, Ellen Ripley, she's, like, the best female protagonist. Yeah, I say something, and we're a bit off track, but I want to rant about nerd fandoms. Go oh, right Ellen on. Ripley would be hated if she came out in 2021. Oh, yeah. They I would call her a bitch Mary Stu who needs to smile more. There's a lot of toxicity in nerd fandoms and Ripley gets away because she's older than the fans who are toxic. Right. That is my hot take. But yeah, Ellen Ripley's a great character. And Sigourney Weaver does a fantastic job performing as Right. Well. Ellen Ripley was actually written as unisex in the script. Ripley was not explicitly a man or a woman. It's just whoever they wanted to cast, and that happened to be yeah, Sigourney Weaver. I believe all of them were, right? Because they're only ever referred to by their last name. Yeah, I mean, I would believe that. They bring Kane back to the ship. Ripley refuses to let them in, but Ash opens the hatch and allows them in, directly disobeying Ripley, although he is obeying the captain, Dallas. So, you know, yes, what are you going to do? Yes, yes, and that's why he's doing it. You can definitely tell from every scene that Ash is in, something's up with him. He's got something else going on. He directly breaks protocol and lets in this potentially harmful alien virus, disease, whatever the fuck you want to call it, the face hugger. And they bring him to the sick bay. They try removing the face hugger from his face. And as they start trying to pry the fingers off it, because the way the way the face hugger works, and I'll have more to say about the design of these creatures later on, but the face hugger, what it is, it's like a crab-like creature with like giant fingers that it latches onto your face, wraps its tail around his neck, and just kind of sits there. It renders people unconscious and does things to it. What does it do? That's spoilers. We're going to get into that a little bit. Yeah, and can I say about facehuggers, like, something that I really like, as they're, like, operating on Kane, you can see, like, the tail, it tightens around his neck. Yeah. Which just, it gives a little bit of ambiguity, like, is that just coincidence, or is it threatening, like, do anything else and I'll strangle him? Yeah. Who knows? But they try to cut it off, and it bleeds some yellow blood that melts through the floor. And the floor underneath it. And the floor underneath that. Yeah. This thing has acid blood that melts through a big chunk of the ship. <laughs> Good thing they were operating on one of the higher decks because otherwise they would have, you know, run out of air. Yeah, that would have been a big problem. <laughs> and Ash, like, marvels at how well adapted this creature is. Yeah. Like, if it has acid blood, well, then you can't eat it or attack it because you'll die. And we're just going to brush aside the fact that Xenomorphs don't really work from a biological sense. Like, I don't know how a silicone-based life form with acid for blood that breeds by impregnating carbon-based life forms, I that doesn't sound like it could exist. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of got to accept it. Accept that there's creatures in this world. It just That's just how that works, you know? Roll with how alien and monstrous these things are. Right. It's so much more frightening since we don't understand it. Even though it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
Ripley confronts Ash about breaking protocol and disobeying her orders. Soon after that, the face hugger falls off of Kane. Yay. It attacks Ripley, but it's not quite dead exactly. It like just kind of is dying. But instead of destroying it, or at least, you know, throwing it outside as they take off, Ash decides that he's the scientific officer and he's going to keep it to conduct experiments for reasons. The face hugger falls off. Kane wakes up. And I believe after that, they take off into space, which I will say, that is some fantastic writing. The way the plot unfolds in this movie is so compelling and so masterfully done. Like, you start off, you're on a desolate alien planet, and one of your crewmates has a monster attached to his face. And you're like, okay, we're in a shitty situation. But then they go back up into space... And there's an even more dangerous alien attached because of that. And it's just the way the tension and the stakes increase as they progressively inadvertently get themselves into worse and worse situations. It's incredibly effective and very well written. I've heard, I believe it was Ripley, Ridley Scott. This side note, you can't name the character Ripley if you're named Ridley. It makes talking about your movie confusing. Yeah. But Ridley Scott has compared it when describing it, not so much as like a traditional monster horror movie, but he said he took a bit of inspiration from Ten Little Indians, or and then they were none. Like, it has a new name in recent years because the original one was a bit racist. Right. The Agatha Christie story, that's the thing that every single murder mystery takes inspiration from. Get some characters, put them in a place where they can't escape from, put something there that's killing them, eat some popcorn and watch. They take off thinking, oh, well, Alien's dead. It's going to be smooth sailing. Let's just have dinner together. Nothing's going to go wrong. And then everything goes wrong. Yeah, arguably, this is pretty shitty. I'd rather be on a shitty alien planet with no way of getting off with a face hugger than I would be in the middle of space with a xenomorph, personally. Once they're in space and Kane is getting some food, out of nowhere, he starts convulsing and screaming in pain. They think he's having a stroke or a seizure or whatever. And while they're trying to help him out, a baby xenomorph, or a chestburster as they're called, bursts out of his chest, as the name implies, in a, just a big splatter of blood. And then the xenomorph runs away. And, side note, can we pause for a moment? Yeah. Let's talk about what this alien is called. Yes. Because if we're going to be technical, first off, I don't think the term xenomorph, I don't think they ever call it a xenomorph in this movie. No, no, they don't. And if we're being technical... The species isn't even called xenomorphs. Like, xenomorph, that's just a fancy term for alien. Xeno as in other, morph as in creature, or I might be wrong, I don't know word roots, but xenomorph's just a fancy term for alien. These things don't have a name. But we're going to call them xenomorphs because other movies called them that. Right. When filming the chestburster scene, Ridley Scott did not tell the other actors what was going to happen. He just said, react to whatever was going to happen. And then a giant penis-shaped alien bursts out of John Hurt's chest. Must have hurt. They burst out of his chest in a massive splatter of blood. So their screams and panics were real, or as real as they could have been. Imagine if, like, the alien was real and, like, what was planned in the script was that John Hurt was going to, like, give some bombshell revelation, like, Dallas, I've always loved you. 
and the actors are supposed to react to that, and then he just dies, and they think, oh, it's part of the movie. I don't know what I'm saying. This is dumb. Cut this in the edit, or don't. I don't care. Yeah, whatever works. The chestburster bursts out of Kane's chest, killing him. They mourn his death and host a funeral for him. They wrap his body up and eject him into space. Which begs the question. It's a very somber scene, and it's very tragic because their friend got killed. But this begs the question. If they just eject the body into space, is this a common practice? And if so, how many bodies do you think are floating around in space in this universe? I don't know if it's the common practice, but it's definitely what they should do when he's infected with an unknown disease. Oh yeah, I agree. Although, to the bodies floating in space, who says it's floating in space? Because it got a bit of momentum from being thrown out of the back of the ship. So it's going to keep moving until it hits something. Mm -hmm. Which means some alien planet out there, just alien kids sitting in a sandbox, having a nice day. John Hurt's corpse just lands in front of them, then transforms into Christopher Eccleson. Or, and hear me out, I really think that that's hilarious. Or, what I also think is hilarious, is the thought of maybe a, a, a luxury vessel goes by. Like, maybe it's like kind of like a cruise ship type thing. And this family is taking a walk right as they woke up. They're going around the ship, seeing the sights. Oh, look, it's the Milky Way galaxy. Look how beautiful. And then out of nowhere, boom, John Hurt's wrapped up carcass hits the window and scars those children for life. So, there's a little itty bitty alien loose on the ship. Let's go look for it. Okay, we hear something. We're approaching it with her flamethrower and net. Okay, we're going to turn around the chair and- Oh my god, it's a kitty! Ah! Yep. Even in space, the whole cat jumping in front of the camera, that's still a thing. It's still yeah. a shitty jump like, scare, though. As a bit of world building that they have a pet cat because entertainment and it keeps it from being so dreary. That's nice. And I'm glad that nothing bad happens to the cat in this series. Mm -hmm. And we're sarcastic a lot. That's not good. I am genuinely glad they didn't hurt Jones. He's a nice kid. Yeah, yeah. The crew split up and they start searching for the alien. Eventually, one of the engineers, Brett, walks through, uh, I don't even know where he is, but there's a shit ton of water coming from the ceiling, which I feel like that that's probably a problem. Wouldn't you agree? Like, just a giant floor in the ship where just massive amounts of water are dumped from the ceiling? I don't know. Just saying. Although, I would say, I don't know if you noticed this. I remember people talking about, so I had to look it up. I couldn't spot it, but during the scene where Brett is, like, walking through the bowels of the ship, yeah. you can see the alien before it attacks him, hiding against the wall, blending in. Uh, yes. If we're thinking of the same thing, I believe that was just in the director's cut, which you and I had a conversation before we watched it, which one we were going to watch. We are watching the theatrically released cut because that's the cut Ridley Scott says he prefers. There's a few very minor differences. The big one is that the cocoon scene is in the director's cut, which breaks continuity with the second one. Or maybe not, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And again, I could be wrong, but that was just in the director's cut. Like, there's a shot of the ceiling, and it's like there's all these tubes and wires dangling from a vent or whatever. And then the xenomorph is, again, just dangling from the ceiling there. And it takes you a second to realize, like, holy shit, that's the thing. It's just in plain sight right there, blending in. 
I don't know. It could have been in this one. I don't believe it was. I think it was just in the director's cut. Oh, by the way, we should give some props because no one ever gives him props. Balaji Badejo, I might have mispronounced that, the Nigerian actor who's like six foot ten who played the xenomorph. Good job. Yeah, he fucking killed it in this movie as this character that's not really shown a whole lot. Honestly, it's like the Jaws idea of how to do a movie monster. Show it the least, which makes it creepy. Right, exactly. That's exactly what they should have done. That's exactly what they did. Getting back to the movie, Brett walks through the bowels of the ship. He finds the cat. The cat starts hissing at him. Then out of nowhere, the fully grown xenomorph, having shed its skin and grown significantly taller than what they last saw him, crawls down from the ceiling behind Brett, kills him in front of that poor cat. Poor kitty. And the alien retreats into the vents. So they like walk down the vents and their plan is to send the captain, Dallison, with a flamethrower so he can kill the alien in the vents. Because that's smart. Have the captain of the ship go into dark tunnels. Dark, confined I mean, tunnels. To be fair, Ripley volunteered, but he said, no, I should do it. I'm the captain. And it doesn't go good for Dallas. Yeah, no. He gets jump scared and eat it. As a horror movie fan, jump scares are fucking stupid. They're cheap and stupid most of the time. Most of the time. They're a tool that is very often misused. Right, exactly. Which leads me to believe that because they're more often than not misused, they're just cheap, shitty scares. Like some guy's walking through a dark hallway and then out of nowhere, his best friend like jumps out at him like, hey bro, how's it going? Like, okay, there goes all the tension from the scene. It was just a, a stupid joke. But when a jump scare is done correctly, like it is in this scene and in many other horror films, like uh, one that comes to my mind are the Conjuring movies, not the spinoffs, just the Conjuring and Conjuring 2, because those are the only good ones in that series, apart from Annabelle Creation or whatever that one's called. Uh, I've heard that one's not bad. But when a jump scare is done correctly, which this one is, it can be used for great effect. Dallas is walking through the tunnels at the bottom of the ship, and as the rest of the crew begins using radar to track where he is and track where the alien is. And then out of nowhere, the alien starts going right for him. And instead of going up, he goes down the ladder, turns around, and finds a big xenomorph reaching out at him. And it's fucking terrifying. Then that's one of the best things I can say about this movie is, like we said, what this movie was, was just a contained thriller that serves the purpose of building and creating as much tension as possible. From the moment the xenomorph bursts out of Kane's chest, the rest of the movie is just great, iconic scenes, self-contained scenes of building tension. The Brett getting killed scene, iconic, great tension. Dallas getting killed, great and iconic great tension. This film is just made up of so many iconic scenes like that that creates such great tension that it just does it so well. And it's fantastic. Also fantastic that I feel like I should bring up right now, the design of the xenomorph. Oh god, can we just talk about- this is a very sexual, I guess is the word for it, film? Yeah, yeah. Like, Freud would have a field day with this <laughs> yeah. shit, with all the Geiger monsters and set design and just so many dicks and vaginas everywhere. Yeah, yeah. The Xenomorph was designed by Swiss painter and artist H.R. Geiger. 
And the inspiration for the design came from, he would apparently go to these BDSM clubs in like the middle of downtown New York. And he would take a lot of inspiration from that. So, and he implemented a lot of those designs into the design of the xenomorph here. Like, as we mentioned earlier, the chestburster is very phallic in nature. It's like this tan-colored, penis-shaped creature with sharp teeth. And we've joked regularly about, hey, that looks like a dick. Like in The Last Airbender, Princess Yue's hair looked like a dick. Yeah, and Zod's ship. Zod's capsule that he was kept in in Man of Steel, it's like, that looked like a dick. And like, typically we make fun of that stuff, but when it's used in this context, it serves for incredible, scary effect. What gave the design such a terrifying look was this subtext of sexual assault. Here are three different things that happened in this movie. Number one, a vagina with legs bursts out of an egg and latches onto a guy's face and then impregnates him, which makes a penis burst out of his chest that then grows into a big penis that has another penis in its mouth that kills a bunch of people. Number two, later on, that monster, spoilers, it like kills a woman and there's a shot of like its tail like running up her leg as she's screaming and some very uncomfortable things. Also, don't just give credit to the alien. There's the scene where the evil nasty boy with cum for blood tries to strangle a woman to death with a porno mag. Yeah. This film, it's... Very, very sexual. Yeah. And you know what? I don't mind the like phallicness but you know what grosses me out about this movie mm. everything is wet like yes when the egg bursts open and it's just gooey like ugh. yeah yeah the egg is very moist and gooey as you put it the face hugger is like you said a vagina with legs and a giant tail that was meant to like conjure up the fear of oral sexual assault particularly in men you know but i mean everyone fears sexual assault i'm not just saying men yeah. but yeah Oh, and we haven't even, we'll get to it, but the film's famous ending of this very Freudian murder alien attacking her while she's in her underwear. Yeah, the xenomorph has these weird tendrils protruding from its back. It's got a very long, smooth, elongated head. It's constantly drooling. It has, it has like a long mouth inside of its own mouth. It's long, slender limbs and body. It's basically a giant latex suit that is like much bigger than humans with the intent and ability to kill you. In addition to the fact that if you kill it, its blood is acid. So there's a very real world possibility you're gonna tear a hole in the hull of your ship as well and you're gonna die from that. The design of this movie and the subtext of just in general is very sexual in nature, which adds to the horror of it. Yeah. Very unsettling. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention it earlier. One little nitpick of this movie. Mm -hmm. How the fuck did the alien get so big? Like, it was a tiny baby. And then like an hour later, it's almost seven feet, actually probably seven feet tall because the suit would add a few things onto Badejo's, or Badejo. I wish, I'd, I'm bad with foreign names. It would add a few inches of height to him. Like, yeah. How did it get so big? Where is it getting this mass? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it ate all the stuff in the cupboards, but like, I got the impression that this thing was a carnivore. Whatever, minor nitpick. Yeah, I mean, it's got acid for blood. You just kind of got to accept it. So Ripley goes to the ship's computer and 
asks it, hey, what's going on? Why is Ash being so annoying, you know, with the break in quarantine and thinking the aliens are cool? What's his deal? And she finds out that the company that they're working for is evil. I mean, yeah, it's a company, but especially evil. They gave Ash special orders to take them to this planet and bring the alien back. Safety of the crew be damned. Ash, like, sneaks up on her and, like, tries to choke her to death, as we said, with a porno mag. She punches him and he starts bleeding this weird white liquid. Uh, So Freudian. Eventually, Parker, the engineer, runs up behind Ash and hits him in the head with something hard enough to knock it off, revealing that Ash is a robot which exists in this world. I'm gasping again. I apologize for that. Dude, you okay? Like, is that asthma? Like, why do you keep gasping? I mean, it's our first horror movie. I gotta gasp, you know? I'm, I'm terrified. This is our first I'm terrified. Horror movie. I'm scared. Ash is revealed to be a robot with the sole purpose of getting this alien for this company, which kind of begs the question, like, how did the company know what was going on on this planet? How do they know that this creature was going to be there? And B, why did that not affect the future of the series, at least with aliens? I don't know. Maybe it's explained in Alien Covenant. Have you seen that one? No, honestly, no. But I know I talk shit about it, but that's only because it's a shit movie without me seeing it. You don't know that. Yes. Yes, I do, Casey. The trailer, the, 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 the seven and a half foot tall xenomorph in this movie, in the trailer, was in broad daylight, banging its head against a window. Now, I know that might sound scary, but all the tension is immediately gone. Especially when it's a sequel to Prometheus, which I have seen. That's BS. Take me home to the place I belong. I've heard nothing good about Alien Covenant. Apart from Dan McBride. We're all gonna fucking die. This is really Freudian. I'm uncomfortable. You should turn that into a song, man. (laughs) Yeah, I can't sing. But yeah, so, Ash is a robot. They plug his head into a computer and talk to him about him being a robot and him trying to bring the alien back because he's a dickhole robot. Mm-hmm. He tells them that, oh, God, it's such a good line. I should have ran it down. Like, basically, you are going to fail, but you have my condolences. <laughs> and they just, like, burn his skull with a flamethrower. Yeah, because fuck that guy. He was always an asshole. Yeah, fuck what him. did you think? About that, he's a robot. So here's the thing about this movie. This movie's dialogue, it's very realistic. It never feels like there's exposition, but, I mean, sci-fi requires exposition a lot. Like, the fact that something's wrong with him isn't a surprise. The fact that robots exist is, I don't know if surprising, but it wasn't established. I think it's okay, it's a side effect of this movie having very tight, very naturalistic dialogue. So I'm I'm fine with it. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it at all. And it is interesting going back into the movie and thinking like, oh, that's what he's up to. I mean, still, he didn't necessarily have to be a robot. Although that does come back in Aliens, the fact that Ripley doesn't trust androids anymore. It dawned upon me upon rewatching it that it kind of comes out of left field a little bit. But you're right. I think being a little bit out of left field for the sake of having a lot of very natural dialogue and human interactions, it's it's very effective. I can give it a pass. So the crew decide to fuck it. Let's just leave the ship. Let's blow it up. 
Let's get in the mini ship and just leave. Screw this. Ripley goes to set up the ship and start the self-destruct sequence while Parker and Lambert go to get life support supplies. Parker and Lambert get killed. Which, side note, it was a terrifying scene because Ripley hears all of it. She's running throughout the ship trying to get it. She hears the only two people left on the ship being killed. But I will say there is a deleted scene that scene where Lambert and Parker attacked, it went a little different in this one deleted scene. It's not in this cut or the director's cut. It's a full-on deleted scene. Basically, I believe it was Lambert. She was doing what she was doing because they're setting uh, the ship to explode or whatever, getting all the supplies. Yeah, grabbing some life support juice. And while she's doing that, the xenomorph crab walks into the room with her. <laughs> right. Like, like... Full on crab walks, and then she turns around, stares at, it, and they're just kind of staring at her. Which I guess it it is theoretically creepy. The idea that this giant monster, in a very bizarre fashion, just kind of crawls up to you and stares at you for a little bit, like holy shit, what's it gonna do? What's it thinking? Right before it kills you. But I'm very glad that that scene got cut because that type of tension would not have worked in this scene. I would have much rather preferred what they did. It just sounds awkward, like a crab walking. Yeah, yeah, like full on, like its spine was like facing the floor, its hands were backwards and shit, belly was up to the ceiling. It, it was just a weird, weird clip. Mm. And, it, and, and not just that, like it's in the middle of the light. In this scene that they kept for the movie, the xenomorph is kept in shadow. And all you see is its shadow. And like you mentioned earlier, you see the tail caressing Lambert's leg. It's very unsettling and very creepy. But point is, <laughs> that deleted scene would not have worked. It's funny to look back. And theoretically, if I were in that situation, I would be terrified as well. But it's a very different type of fear than what this film is going for. So, I mean, everyone but Ripley's dead, but that's fine. Because Ripley, she gets on the shuttle. She manages to grab the cat, which is good. Mm -hmm. Don't kill the kitty. She gets on the shuttle and she blasts off and the ship explodes, presumably taking the alien with it. The day is saved. Huh, it's weird that there's still 15 minutes left in this movie. I guess there's a lot of very long credits because Ripley is going to get away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, she's walking around the ship. She's undressing for cryo sleep and she just walks past the alien <laughs> and she doesn't even notice it at first because like we said, it blends in. But yeah, alien on the shuttle. Oh. Another thing that struck me upon rewatching it, it's something very, very tiny, but it says a lot about the xenomorph as a creature and as a being. And it's very, very subtle. You see, while Ripley is running through the ship, getting everything ready, and after she hears Parker and Lambert getting killed by the xenomorph, she is able to find the cat and puts it in a little crate and begins running with that as well. Eventually, she puts the cat down or drops it, one of the two, and starts trying to continue on with what she's doing because she's being chased by the xenomorph. And again, it's very terrifying, very tension-filled, but she leaves the cat behind for a little bit. And it's very subtle, but if you look at it, there's a shot where the xenomorph stops and just crawls up the ladder where the crate with the cat inside is being kept. You can see there's a shot of the xenomorph, it peeks over the ladder and stares at the cat for a little bit. And then later on, Ripley goes back to retrieve the cat, gets onto the, the escape pod, 
and blasts off. And for me, the reason why that shot had so much impact was because you just think this xenomorph was intelligent enough to understand that the humans care about this cat. She's going to come back for this. Like, when she comes back, I can follow her, and that's how I'll get her. It's something so small and so subtle, but it has a huge impact on my perception and the audience's perception of what the xenomorph is capable of. It's not just a seven-foot-tall, acid-blood killing machine. No, it's also very intelligent, enough to think tactically how to defeat their opponents. And speaking of the alien's intelligence, when it's on the shuttle with Ripley, it's kind of chill. Like, it doesn't, like, just kill her. It just sits there and watches because it knows there's nowhere left to run. Yeah, that one takes its time. For me, I'll, I'll be honest with that scene. For me, like, I was like, this is pretty convenient. It's giving her a lot of time to get ready. But then it dawned on me, like you said, I go, oh, shit. He's biding his time, isn't he? Yeah. Although it probably shouldn't have, because Ripley puts on a spaceship and opens the airlock door and the alien gets sucked out. Mm -hmm. It tries to hang on and, like, she shoots it, but still hangs on and, like, it catches on to the engines and she turns on the engines and blasts it away. It's finally dead. Unless it can survive in a vacuum. Because, you know what, I wouldn't be surprised. These things are unstoppable death machines. Yeah. But the day is, well, not saved. Everyone's dead. Ripley is alive. And the film ends. And she goes to cryo sleep, where she will be awakened in the next movie. Mm -hmm. God, such a great movie. Yeah, this was fantastic. In terms of flaws I have with this movie, there was some ADR and maybe some slight moments where the acting just kind of wasn't great for me. Like there's a part where something happens to one of the people and then one of them reacts like this. They're like, is he all right? I'm like, okay, yeah, that acting wasn't a spectacular choice, but that happens few and far between in this movie. And another problem, there are some logistical issues, some minor logistical issues. When they're defeating Ash and they take off his head and they put it on the ground, the way it cut between the shots didn't seem very convincing. Just the practical effects, it wasn't exactly shot or cut together in the most convincing way. So maybe two or three moments, three, four moments of the ADR and acting not being the greatest, a couple minor logistical issues, and maybe like two shots. That's it. Those are the only flaws of this movie I have. That's basically what I'm trying to get at. This movie is incredible. It's a masterpiece of science fiction horror. Yeah, what else can we say? It's just fantastic. It's chilling. The set design and monster design is fantastic. The acting is great. You know, it's actually funny. I read this movie came out in an era where horror movies commonly ended with the protagonist being killed at the end because you had to have a downer ending. And this movie subverts that. Ripley survives. Actually, it's interesting. The original ending that was pitched and thankfully rejected. Like, normally I rag on studio interference, but I, this was a good one. The original ending was the alien to kill Ripley <laughs> and then, like, imitate her, like, do a voice recording in her voice. Like, yeah, I'm glad they cut that. I'm glad Ripley survives. She's earned it. 
Yeah, and Sigourney Weaver would actually go on to get nominated for Best Actress for Aliens, this movie's sequel, strangely enough. A sci-fi action movie where she wears a giant forklift suit and fights a queen alien. Yeah, she got nominated for an Oscar for that. Good on her. Who'd she lose to? Uh, let's see. She lost to Marlee Matlin for Children of a Lesser God. She was up against Kathleen Turner, Jane Fonda, and Sissy Spacek. Yeah, I've heard of none of those movies besides Aliens. Has she ever gotten an Oscar? I know she's been nominated many times. Sigourney Weaver? Yeah. Uh, let's see. She got the Golden Globe for Best Actress for Gorillas in the Mist. Let's see. Looked it up. She has been nominated three times for Oscars. Twice for Best Actress, once for Best Supporting. Aliens and Gorillas in the Mist for Best Actress, Working Girl for Best Supporting Actress. She's a great actor, though. We're in the weeds. We've gone off topic. Speaking of awards, Riley, what type of score would you award this movie? I will give this the highest possible grade I can give in good conscience, and that is a 9.5 out of 10. That is an A-plus for me. This movie is basically maybe a notch down from perfect, just with those little tiny issues here and there. That's it. Like, this movie is a masterpiece of sci-fi horror. The production design, the acting, the directing, the writing, absolutely all of it is fantastic. For what this movie is going for, it pioneered its own genre. It completely revolutionized the way people think of science fiction cinema, and why just cinema in general. You know, horror cinema, all of it. This movie, it can never be understated how much impact this movie had. And it would go on to make a really good sequel and then four other movies. But, you know, you can't judge it based on that. What you got to do is talk about how is this movie basically perfect? And I'm giving it the highest possible grade I can give it. And that's a nine and a half out of ten. Well, I I mean, not to split hairs, but you could give it a a 10 would be the highest possible. Yeah, but you know me. I'm also 9.5 out of 10. I would say this is the best movie we've ever watched. It's a close tie with Eternal Sunshine. I think it's just slightly better, but not a perfect 10. This movie is fantastic. It's just fantastic. Yeah. It's a phenomenal horror movie. I would say that this is the second greatest sci-fi horror movie ever made. Yeah, what would be the first? Oh, we'll get to that movie eventually. Zip Lips Close. It's one of my favorite movies I've ever Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. But yeah, this movie, fantastic. There's not a whole lot we can really say, apart from the fact that it's great. And I know we talk, I always bring this up every time we review, like, a genuinely great movie. It's like, you know, what else can we say? This movie is fantastic. Like, typically when I do a review, I take all my notes on a single sheet of loose leaf, and I cover both sides, typically. But in this one, I just covered one side, because I'm like, there's just not a whole lot to say apart from the plot and the fact that they fucking killed everything, every single aspect about it. I didn't even write notes. Like, halfway through the movie, I realized, oh, all I've written down is, this is good, slow build, why alien big, set design good. So I just deleted it and watched the movie. Like, this is a damn good movie. And next week, we're going to be watching another damn... <laughs> I, can't, I can't even say that with a straight face. Next week is April 20th. We're watching... We're watching Howard the Duck. Another iconic sci-fi horror movie. Because that movie is fucking horrific. Yeah. So, look forward. First theatrically released marvel comics inspired movie 13 percent rotten tomatoes admittedly 
I've never seen it. I'm sure it's a masterpiece. It's produced by George Lucas, and if you read the internet these days, George Lucas can do no wrong. Yeah, the internet's... It's weird, like, watching how the internet's view on George Lucas has changed over time, and that's honestly a discussion for a Star Wars review. But yeah, next week, Howard the Duck. It's probably not going to be good, but we're going to watch it. Get ready this 420, because we're fucking reviewing Howard the Duck. Oh, boy. Riley, where can they find you? You can all find me on TikTok and Instagram at Riley James Thorpe, where you can check out all of my content there. You can also follow me on YouTube at Riley Thorpe, where you can check out all of my short films. Speaking of social media, I would just like to make an announcement that yesterday, at least yesterday as of recording this episode, I have officially... Yeah, so like two weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. I have officially created Instagram, Facebook... TikTok, and Twitter accounts for this show, uh, and a YouTube channel for this show. Hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, I will have started posting on these, but for right now, we have these accounts, Silver Age, Silver Screen, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go check us out. Go follow us. Get ready for a lot more updates and content coming to those. You can find me on Twitter at JarmsCasey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. You can find pretty much everything I've ever done at CaseyJarms.wordpress.com. Also, while you're there, maybe check out the new video essay I made called My Hero Academia, Superheroes and the Status Quo. It's talking about superhero tropes and kind of some problems in the genre using the anime My Hero Academia as like a jumping off point. I think it's a very good essay. It is. It's very different in tone from this, but I I think you guys will like it. Yes, I have watched it and I highly recommend it to to just people. Not just fans of superheroes and fans of the show, fans of character development and just people in general. I recommend it to all people. Aw, thanks, man. We'll be back next week, assuming we don't slip into the Freudian hellscape that is the Alien franchise. Like, seriously, oh god, there is so much weird sexual stuff in this movie. But it's fine, it was a good movie. Best movie we've seen on this podcast. As always, I'm Casey Jarns. And I'm Riley Thorpe. And hey, it's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it. Especially not to a ladder.